Okay, we're going to start in a couple minutes. We're just setting up a speaker outside for everyone who couldn't get in. All you lucky seat people. Hey there, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event that I founded at LIC Bar in April of 2015. Our five-year anniversary was scheduled to come up next month, but the country is currently dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, and I wanted to bring an event for you now that was the celebration of our two-year anniversary on April 11th, 2017, because it was really fantastic, and I want to put something out there in the world this week that um, was a memory of a really great event in the before COVID times. Uh, This was... A special two-year anniversary event featuring Chloe Caldwell, Eileen Miles, and Elisa Chappelle. And this um, podcast will feature the readings from that event. And as always, because we're so proud to be in Queens with LIC Reading Series, Chloe, Eileen, and Elisa all share a brief Queens anecdote before they read from their work. In our next episode, you can tune in for the panel discussion from this awesome event. Hope everyone's doing well, and... uh, Please enjoy the readings, well, starting with Chloe Caldwell. But we're going to go ahead and get started with our first reader. The, the format's going to be we're going to have two readers, then we'll have an intermission so you can pee and drink and say, isn't this amazing? I need to tweet about it. Um, and then we'll have one more reader and we'll have a panel discussion. So one thing that we ask our readers to do here because we're so proud of our location in Queens is to share a little anecdote about queens before they read from their work. So you can expect that. Um, We are going to start off with Chloe Caldwell. (laughs) Chloe Caldwell is the author of the essay collection, I'll Tell You in Person, by Coffeehouse Emily Books, published last year, and the novella Women from Short Flight Long Drive in 2014. Her novella, After Women, will be released in 2017, from Short Flight Long Drive, along with a reprint of her first book, Legs Get Led Astray. <laughs> Chloe's work has appeared in Lenny Letter, New York Magazine, Long Reads, Vice, Salon.com, The Rumpus, The Millions, Catapult, Hobart Nylon, The Sun, Men's Health, The Nervous Breakdown, and half a dozen anthologies. And I have to share this. Chloe was recently named one of the 41 hottest singles of 2017 by Elle. <laughs> So I think we know what to talk about in the panel discussion. Um, She teaches creative nonfiction writing in New York City and online and lives in Hudson. Let's give a warm welcome for Chloe. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming. Um, Thank you, Catherine, for having me. Uh, Okay, an anecdote about Queens. Is Trevor here? Yeah, he is. All right. So last summer, I went to Queens. I went to my friend Trevor Heron's place, and we went out to dinner with a few friends, and I had the best chicken, rice, and beans that I've ever had in my entire life. And the place we went to, I want to say that they gave free wine refills, which seemed really insane for New York City. So that's that. And also, Trevor used to work at The Strand, uh, 2008, 2007, and he actually gave me a copy of Black Sparrow's edition of Chelsea Girls. Um, And when I read Chelsea Girls, I was around 22 on the subway, and after I read it, it really lit a fire under my ass, and I started writing. So it's really full circle that I'm reading with Eileen tonight. Um, That's not really a Queens anecdote, but Trevor now lives in Queens, so I'm trying to, like, (laughs) I'm doing the best I can. Okay. 
So I'm going to read uh, from my novella, Women. Um, it's a short novella about a torrid love affair, and there's no spoilers, really. The whole thing is just a shit show, so I just, I'm going <laughs> to, so I'm just going to read from random points of it, so don't worry about, like, you didn't, you know, miss anything. So all you need to know is it's a love affair between two women um, 20 years apart. I knew I found Finn's aesthetic attractive, but I hadn't yet explored feelings of being attracted to her, in part because I hadn't yet explored my ability to fall for a woman. I figured if I was going to be with a woman, I would have been with one by now. I would know if I was bisexual or gay. Being a writer, I assumed I was at least mildly self-aware. It also had not occurred to me that Finn might be attracted to me. It didn't occur to me she might be interested in me as more than a friend. It didn't occur to me, even though she wrote me an email in which she said she wanted me to read on a bar stool under dim lights for her while she sipped on a beer. Yeah, book it, her email ended. Book it. <laughs> and I do vaguely remember staring at her brown hands while she spoke, her knuckle tattoos, thinking they were the most beautiful hands I had ever seen. I excitedly tell one of my bisexual friends about sleeping over at Finn's one weekend while her girlfriend is out of town. My friend shakes her head. You guys shouldn't do that. I play dumb and ask, why not? She raises her voice and says, because you're not a lesbian, because she has a girlfriend. She is hot, though, she adds, and I agree. After having sex with Finn for the first time, my phone interrupts my sleep. She says she wanted to hear my voice. She's left work for her lunch break and is walking to buy a slice of pizza. She tells me she's trying to write about our past three days, but all she comes up with is blue and womb and holy fucking hell. Our conversation goes, sometimes on American Idol, Nicki Minaj says, I'm obsessed with you. I'm obsessed with you right now, I say. I'm so obsessed with you right now, she says. We laugh. She does end up writing about our time in the aquarium. That's the basement. She reads me a poem she wrote about us. The poem says she knew that the we or us of this would never make it out of that ocean-colored room, but that she loved me anyway. The poem says, you were already in your pajamas, but I fucked you anyway, because sometimes life writes itself. Things seem to accelerate overnight. We are all over each other with sweet words. We send each other sentences. Rebecca Solna and Ma Mary Ruffle and Catherine Angel and Susan Minot and Adrian Rich and Maggie Nelson and Ivan Coyote. We text or email photos of the sentences. What I know, when I met you, a blue rush began. We treat desire as a problem to be solved. We fucked for six straight hours that afternoon, which does not seem precisely possible, but that is what the clock said. We killed the time. <laughs> to read is to cover one's face. To write is to show it. Finn tells me she sits and stares at her email account as though she is about to win the lottery. She sends me a song called Vagitarian, Lesbian Love Song, that won't work, but I keep the file downloaded onto my computer for months anyway, until I eventually move it into the recycle bin. My mother had recently told me that life could be exciting without drugs. After having sex with Finn, I begin to agree with my mother. I've never had a therapist, but in this city, everyone seems to have a therapist and an acupuncturist. Does your therapist think I'm bad for you? Finn asks. I don't want to be bad for you. Finn gives me a choice. Do I want to wear her flannel shirt or her sweatshirt or her leather jacket? It's a few weeks after the first time we slept together, and it's a weeknight. 
I choose the flannel because I've already worn the sweatshirt and jacket, and I like to wear as many different pieces of clothing of other people's as I can. Finn fingers me under the table, under my dress, which makes this easier. When we are drinking in dark bars, we forget we are in public. Come home with me, she says three times in my ear. She's too drunk to steer her bike home. She thinks she is going to puke. She accuses me of roofing her drink. So I walk her bike and she stumbles along next to me. This is the first time she has drunk more than I have. Lesbians can suck my dick. They will ruin your life. I tell the bartender this after my second tequila shot. He responds by asking if I would like a glass of water. I tell Finn I'm worried her rings are going to come off inside me. I am terrified of getting things stuck inside me, although nothing like that has ever happened. Whenever we have sex, Finn throws one of her back ribs out, and I can feel it for weeks afterward. My right shoulder blade is always bothering me. I'm hyper aware of it sticking out of my back. She calls it my wing. I love asking her, will you fix my wing? When I ask that, she nods, turns me onto my back, and touches my shoulder blade tenderly. She takes my hand, stretches my arm out, and moves it in circles, coaxes it back into place. Tonight, while she's doing this, it is quiet until she says, I don't know, when you moved here, I felt like you belonged to me. I feel cared for in this moment. I will cling to this memory for the next few months as I feel less and less cared for by Finn. On a park bench one evening, after Finn gets out of work and before I go in, I read her poems from A Dream of a Common Language. She says Adrian Rich scares her a little. I am learning that many things scare her a little. She has a tea tree toothpick in her mouth. She has the posture of a teenage boy. I want to pummel her, wrestle her in the grass, give her new blue jeans, grass stains, hump her leg. When was the last time someone read you poems in a park, I ask. Never, she says, smiling. Finn and I both have a birthday in spring. She gives me nothing for my birthday, I give her nothing for hers. On my birthday eve, Nathan and I hit the bars after work. We drink white trashes, shit whiskey followed by Miller High Life. And at the end of the night, we find ourselves at a strip club. I keep putting dollar bills into the stripper's underwear, and a man on the loudspeaker says, please stop touching the dancers. <laughs> Nathan drives me home and is patient with my manic chatter while we sit parked outside the aquarium. I sing along to Dream On by Aerosmith, and when I'm finished, I lean over and vomit on the sidewalk. Nathan holds my hair back from my face, rubs my back. When I finish, he looks apologetic and embarrassed. He tells me he's gotten his period, and could he come use the bathroom? His testosterone levels are out of whack. I feel terrible that he's been silently struggling all night. We walk downstairs to my apartment, and he gently points out to me that I have pissed myself. My mom's birthday also falls during spring, and she flies in to visit me. I meet her at the airport. I do with my mother many of the same things I do with Finn. We lie in my bed in the aquarium and watch films. She sleeps on the side of bed on the side of the bed Finn slept on. I get dressed with my mom still in the room. She makes comments on my outfit choices. I have a newfound fascination with my mother. If she has a new bracelet, I want to try it on. If she has a glass of water, I want a sip. If she has boots I have not seen, I want to borrow them for the day. I want to know her dreams in the morning. When she was chewing gum, I asked for a piece. If she's getting a second coffee, I want one too. If she loves a book she is reading, I will read the same book. I wanted what was not mine. In Finn's absence, I crave the attention of women. I jump at the chance to be around females in public and private settings, with friends and strangers. 
I also joined an online dating site. Remember when you went dyke shopping? The female Woody Allen asked me over the phone recently. That sounded exhausting and depressing. I am a social fucking butterfly. I accept all invitations and often I do the inviting. One Saturday I go on three dates in a row with women I meet online. I tell myself these dates are a distraction technique, but there is part of me that hopes I will fall in love. I meet a woman who describes herself as a dyke who rides bikes. This is perfect, and I wonder if she will be like Finn. I meet her on the patio of a bar, and 10 minutes into our conversa conversation, I learn, one, she's an alcoholic, two, Augustine Burroughs is her hero, three, she checks herself into rehab often. She works delivering sandwiches for a cafe. Her face is all busted up from falling off her bike the night before, drunk. I'm attracted to this kind of mess. We make plans to hang out again, and a few days later, I meet her outside her grandmother's house. We sit on the lawn close to one another, and she passes me the apple she is eating. I take a bite and pass it back. This feels intimate to me, sharing saliva. Are we girlfriends, I wonder in my head, or are we just sharing an apple? <laughs> Finn asked me to marry her once. She was off to get our third round of drinks, and she leaned over where I was sitting. Her arm hung over the booth. She hunched over me. She told me she'd been thinking about it. Would you marry me, she asked. I wouldn't answer, but she wouldn't let me off the hook, so finally I said either duh or of course. In the morning, I reminded her of it. What a jackass, she said. I see now that she said, would you, as opposed to, will you? This is what happened. I fell in love with someone I shouldn't have fallen in love with, is what Finn says all logical and slowly when she is mad at me one night. She talks to me like I have a learning disability. I wonder if she realizes she just quoted a Buzzcock song. But I don't say anything. I let it go. Who cares? She used to be able to see my mind gears turning. What, she'd ask, seeing a certain expression on my face. Never mind. I'd shake my head and she'd say, no, tell me what you were going to say. Put your heart on my heart. So I'd sigh and straddle her and lay my heart down and she would say, this is going to be a good one. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chloe Caldwell, for starting us off. I'm going to keep clapping. Um, I, I love that description of the posture of a teenage boy. It's really... Um, also, the narrator talking about um, wanting something that wasn't hers, wanting to chew her mother's gum, and I'm thinking, that's an adult thing to say because... Having a baby now, everything that is mine is his, and like he, there's no division there, you know. So, um, also, you need to find that vegetarian song. Oh yeah, clearly we all do. Um, thank you for reading, Elisa Chappelle. All right. Elisa Chappelle is the author of two books of fiction, Use Me, which was a Los Angeles Times Best Book of the Year, a New York Times Notable Book, and the runner-up for the Penn Hemingway Award, and Blueprints for Building Better Girls, which we have available here, along with Chloe's I'll Tell You in Person, yes, uh, da -da -da. Blueprints for Building Better Girls was chosen as one of the best books of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and, oh, magazine. 
Her fiction, essays, and nonfiction have appeared in a number of magazines, including the Paris Review, Spin, and GQ, and anthologies such as the Mrs. Dalloway Reader, Cooking and Stealing, and here she comes now. She is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, former senior editor of the Paris Review, and a founding editor, now editor-at-large, of Tin House. She teaches in the MFA Fiction Writing Program at Columbia. Let's give a warm welcome to Elisa. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> oh, no, that's worse. Is that okay? Um, Queens. I, I uh, as a little girl, when my family used to come to New York, our friends lived in Queens, and so I always thought that Queens was just New York City. It never occurred to me that there was any kind of uh, stigma attached to that. In fact, when I actually uh, then moved to the city, I was shocked to find that the spaces in Manhattan were not queen-sized, that you were, you know, going to be sleeping standing up. Also, you come for the dim sum, the Greek food. It's a, we hate those haters. Um, so I'm going to read uh, part of a story from this book. I'm going to start in the middle. And I guess all you need to know is that this is a mother talking to her daughter on the phone. The mother is, uh, has been divorced for quite some time. The daughter is, I guess, like 25 years old and has been an anorexic for most of her life. And there is a boy now involved. The daughter has never uh, had a boyfriend before or had any kind of um, physical relationship with anybody. And this is causing a little bit of stress between them. <clears throat> Oh, and there's a sister, too, but I don't think she appears here. We married at 23. It was the 70s. Even then, it seemed young. The marriage lasted 13 years. 13 is the lace anniversary. My husband gave me a divorce. My mother and father were married at 23. It was the 40s, so that would have seemed old. The marriage lasted 40 years. 40 is the ruby anniversary. 40 trumps 13. My mother got a gold necklace with a ruby drop, a bead of blood at her throat. For 40 years, my mother ignored my father tooting his horn and whistling at women on the street, endured him placing his hand on the behinds of hundreds of waitresses and shop girls. Forty years, she held her tongue, twisted her napkin in her lap, glaring murderously at me when I dared to look at her with anything close to pity. I am 48, and I can still fit into my old wedding dress. Every year, I try it on to gauge how my body has changed. It's a little tight around the middle, but if I gave up my nightly glass or two of wine, started running again, or did yoga, it might fit. At 24, Emily is one year older than I was when I had her. Emily is two years younger. Paige is two years younger than Emily. Paige kayaks and sails and ran a marathon for fun. I never worry about her. Emily boasts of her great eating habits, attention to nutrition. She walks everywhere. I worry about her breaking a bone. Estimated number of times a week, Emily calls me, 20. Exact number of times a week, she calls her father, one, on Sunday, long distance from my house. Zero is the number of times Emily has, to my knowledge, entertained a man in her apartment. The number of times Emily has cooked for me, also zero. I do the math. It adds up. I did tell you that she's going to teach her how to cook a chicken, right? Did I tell you that part? 
over the phone. Fuck, I am so nervous. And I have to tell you, I hurt my back and I took oxycodone. <laughs> so actually, I'm not even really sure if this is happening at all. I am wearing clothes, right? Good. Do have on a blouse. No underwear, but got the blouse on. Right. She's trying to teach her daughter how to make a fucking chicken over the telephone, which is hilarious because the daughter's anorexic. You get it? Yeah. And, the, uh, you know, you got that telephone cord going into the wall, which is like an umbilical cord. Here, I'll teach it to you. All right. I'm going to start over. Not from the beginning. Don't worry. <laughs> God, I'm sorry. Uh, Emily says, okie dokie, step one of the stuffing completed. I'm done with the carrots and celery. Celery is a staple of Emily's diet. It has six calories and chewing burns ten. If you stop eating sugar, carrots taste like candy. So now the onion, I say. I hear her blade cutting fast like she thinks if she chops fast, she can outdistance the tears. I'm afraid she's going to cut herself. Gee, this is so much fun, Emily says with a happy sniffle. Or maybe it only feels that way because I'm in love. Love? It's stuck, like a it's stuck in my throat like a bone. I despise the word stuffing, don't you, Mommy? Why would anyone eat anything that promised to stuff you? I sensed her shiver. So now I'm just supposed to pack this mess into that hole? Don't overfill it. It expands. She laughed. Will it explode? I almost wish this would happen. What would Prince Charming do? Laugh it off? Take her in his arms and tell her not to worry? Would he insist they salvage the bird and then afterward tell her, baby, that was so delicious? Or would he judge her? Would he scowl and make a mental note? Hmm, <laughs> not wife material. Can't have poultry blowing up left and right. Someone could lose an eye. Emily, I say, fighting my annoyance. Maybe I could just tell you the recipe and you could write it down. Oh, pardon me. I thought, in light of these extraordinary circumstances, you, mother, might want to help. I do want to. I'm sorry. The phone, it's just hard this way. Forget it, mother, I'm letting it go. She took a long breath. Because, she said, did I mention that I'm in love? Fifty was the estimated number of lovers Terry had during our marriage. He didn't offer this number with remorse or grief or pride, more like a seasoned tax attorney. He delivered the information to me, he said, because it's been weighing on my conscience for too long as though his conscience were a beach chair groaning under the fat ass of his indiscretion. <laughs> Every year for a decade after we split, I got an AIDS test. Did I mention that I'm in love? Terry's wife is 35, 13 years younger than me. They have two boys. Emily, Paige, and I, we call them the toxic test tube twins. They're in grade school, and Emily says, blonde as Nazis. Terry told the girls the divorce was my idea. I was unflexible, demanding, no fun. I told the girls zero about their father screwing around. I was ashamed to admit that no matter how much and how good I gave, it wasn't enough. Two hours was the amount of time the lifeguard at the YMCA estimated Emily had been swimming before she passed out last year and nearly drowned. Five minutes was the amount of time Emily estimated she was unconscious. One second is how far away Emily swears she was from going into the light. Because Emily wasn't living with me and had long ago stopped recording her gains and losses on a piece of graph paper on the bathroom wall, I didn't know until then that she had dropped below 75 pounds. 
75 pounds was the magic number. It meant she could be checked into the eating disorders wing of the Melrose Institute. That made two times in six years. Sixteen days after she was released, she moved into her own apartment. She bought her own scale, light and high-tech, that measured with digital precision down to the ounce, as well as calculated your body fat. In comparison, my own scale, a large gray slab with a needle that wavered uncertainly, seemed out of the Stone Age, as precise as using a sundial for a stopwatch. The hospital is one hour and 45 minutes away. I bought the complete works of Stephen King on CD for the ride back and forth. Vampires, witches, ghosts, tale of the undead dead terrorizing the innocent. Each day, another monster claimed another victim, and the hero got closer to slaying it. The hospital where my mother is bedridden is 20 minutes from my home. She sleeps a lot. Some days all she'll eat is a gallon of vanilla Haagen-Dazs. She has a sweet tooth. When I visit, we sit outside the hospital on a bench so she can smoke. Three cigarettes an hour. Her tank of oxygen, which she drags everywhere, sitting just inside the door like a chaperone past Karen. When I told my mother that Emily was in the hospital too, she sighed, it's such a shame you weren't able to keep that husband of yours. He was so dashing, and he made a mean old-fashioned, too. She shook her head with grave disappointment. Those poor, poor girls. But you know, you did spoil them. I told you, if you pick up a baby every time it cries, it'll grow up thinking every time it cries, someone will pick it up. She put her hand on my leg. Now look at you. Look at how well you turned out. I know she's old, sick too, still it wouldn't be the worst thing to never see my mother again. Amount of money I would inherit, zero. Amount of money Emily's 90-day stay cost me, $40,000. Amount my insurance company would pay, $10,000. Five was the number of group therapy sessions Emily took part in each week. Four, the number of one-on-one -on -one sessions with a psychiatrist. Three, meetings with a nutritionist. The number of times she was tied to her bed during her stay. Only one. Given her medical history, Emily's chances of ever being able to have a baby are one in a hundred. The internist at Melrose was the first of three doctors to tell me that. I wanted to cry. How could Emily not have a daughter someday? It was like hearing your child would never be happy. The age of the unmarried doctor who so glibly gave us this news, maybe 26. Number of children, you can bet zero. Emily might have dated him. It happened all the time. Pretty girl, cute doctor. I liked the idea. A doctor husband, one who could perform CPR, set broken bones, prescribe painkillers. Someone I could trust to take care of her. At 23, she was one of the older girls in the program, a seasoned pro among teenagers. During group therapy, the mothers and daughters sat in a circle. You could tell the mothers had made an attempt to look nice. No sweats, no sneakers. The mothers wear lipstick. We do our hair. We don't look like the parents visiting children in other parts of the hospital. The daughters, dressed in regulation blue gowns that hit just below the knee, stared icily at us like gang members cracking their knuckles, shivs made from melted toothbrushes hidden in their thick woolly socks. They're matching hospital bands, like fr friendship bracelets. <clears throat> For us, the girls recalled in poetic detail their inaugural purge, and they did so with the nostalgia of a first kiss. Masters now, some boasted that the simple act of kneeling and bringing two fingers toward their mouths could trigger their gag reflex. 
One said she could make herself vomit by just thinking the word meatball. They talked shop. Amphetamines, Ipecac, enemas, Emily flashed her scars, showed off the tooth she had chipped binging on frozen eclairs. Even here, especially here, it was a competition, a race, simple math. The one who lost the most weight won. The thing is, to win was to die. You didn't even get the trophy. We weren't allowed to cry, just witness. This isn't about you right now, the group leader would remind us. How was it not about us? Did I mention that I'm in love? Thank you. Elisa, that was like, I'm going to make all of our readers take oxycodone from now on. Yeah. Not yours. No, you can keep yours. <clears throat> We are going to have one more reading, and then we're going to have a fantastic discussion. Um, let's see. Ooh. Eileen Miles. All right. Eileen Miles is a poet, novelist, and performer whose books include Chelsea Girls, I Must Be Living Twice, Selected Poems, and The Importance of Being Iceland, Travel Essays in Art. Afterglow, a dog memoir, will be out in fall 2017. In 1992, Miles conducted an openly female write-in campaign for President of the United States, Where Are You Now When We Need You?, yeah, they have received grants and awards from the Guggenheim Foundation, Creative Capital, the Foundation for Contemporary Art, and in 2016 were awarded the Clark Prize for Excellence in Art Writing. Miles is also a television poet. Their poems have appeared in seasons two and three of the Emmy-winning TV show Transparent. Um, also, uh, I think it's today is the publication date, yes, for the reissue of Cool For You by Soft Skull Press. We have it available here with the... Yes! Very exciting. It has a brand new introduction by Chris Krauss, so you should totally pick one up. Um, I will tell you uh, that uh, this is some words from Softskull. It says, for Cool For You, the first published novel of legendary poet and performer Eileen Miles follows a queer female growing up in working-class Boston, straining against the institutions that hold her. Family, Catholic school, jobs at a camp, at a nursing home, at a school for developmentally disabled adult males. Free-ranging and deadpan, tragic and joyful, this is a book about women, gender, class, bodies, escape, and what it means to be inside. I'm just going to leave you with one, uh, one comment from Mary Gateskill, who says, Cool for You is touching, funny, and original, featuring strange, beautiful images of the ordinary world. Miles once said of Henry Miller that he rises life from within, and the same can be said of Eileen. Let's welcome Eileen to the stage. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, this is so cool. I think this is the one. Yeah. And and so great to read with you guys. Did I already say that? I'm like in a dream state too. Let's let's keep the dream state going. Yeah, yeah. No, I love you both so much in your work, and this is like fabulous. Um, so thank you for doing this. And Queens, my collection of Queen, my connection Queens. First of all, it's the first part of New York that I ever touched ground 
I, mean, I, I, came, I came here with my family for the World's Fair, the la which when you think of World's Fair, it's such a weird kind of pre-internet idea. Like it's all here and the future is here. And we're gonna see it now, you know? It's, it's here in New York, in Queens, you know? So um, we, my family, um, we rented a hotel room in Jackson Heights, which was so, you know, so sad, this family from Boston, going to, you know, New York to the world. And my dad had just died. And, um, and then we, t and it was like a little car service from the motel would then take you to the subway and then you would take the subway to the world's fair, you know? So it was just like, it was all these things at once. It was like New York subway, which was the, and it was like old sixties, dirty, funky New York. I mean, like pre graffiti even, it was just like, you know, I want to quote myself. It was like an old broken down Nazi. That's what I have. You know, it was so bad. And so I, lo I loved it. I loved New York right away. And, and Queens is what I touched. But then my drug dealer, I mean, I, I, when I first came to New York, I worked at the, um, I'm not even going to read. I'm just going to talk. I, I worked at the West End Bar, which was my first job. And I was, and, and everybody in New York was so kind of New York skinny, and I was like chubby girl from Boston. So they were like, "Will you go to our speed doctor in Queens? You're, you weigh a little more, you know." And so I became the body, and so I hooked up with this speed doctor, and I was like, "I don't take drugs." And so they made me take a few drugs, and just trying to be a nice person, I took the drugs, and then developed an eight-year speed habit, you know. <laughs> And I had a hook up with the Strand. There was a guy named Harry who worked at the Strand, and I would sell the pills that I didn't take to Harry every month. So it was just like the connection to Queens is fast. <laughs> and actually, I, I moved to New York to go to grad school, and I was went to Queens College, and I dropped out in two months. So I'm like all Queens. <laughs> it's like two Queens. So I'm so excited this book came out today. And and um, where's Yuka? Ah, it was like a, more being high. Thank you so much for republishing this book because um, I think it was like in the back ward of Soft Skull until you rebirthed it. So I'm just going to read three little sections from it. Um, okay. I hate being a woman. I hate being a woman. I am 45, almost 50. I was walking along some cement the other day across the kiosk going out, rushing someplace with a cigarette in my hand. I thought of that girl. I was leaning in Soho one night on Broadway waiting for someone. A girl came around the corner. She had my face. She had long hair. She was kind of dreaming, looking sad. She had a cigarette in her hand. She was on her own. I felt so lonely looking at that girl, around 22 or 25, just moved to New York had an apartment, this big-faced white girl, kind of strong, a healthy girl, but sad. She wasn't doing anything tonight. You could tell. She had her cigarette. It was like the whole vague longing of youth was in that smoke, loosely but closely held in her fingers. What time of year was it? Maybe fall. There was fall in the air. There was her and her cigarette and her body. She had a walk. She was kind of drifting. She probably intended to buy some food. She was moody. Maybe she was going to her friend's apartment. It didn't matter. You, she could have even been going to a party. It didn't matter, not to her. Her walk counted. The fact that she was out there alone with her thoughts. Not much had happened. It wasn't on her. She was kind of sad and kind of free. When I was 12, it was the last day of school, and I was lying in bed, and something felt wet underneath me, and I felt weirdly sick. I got up, and there was blood underneath me, and I faintly understood, and I pulled myself up. 
I remember cotton around me, pajamas and my sheets, and I carried myself downstairs, my bare feet hitting the fake wool of the carpet, and I can hear those soft thuds, those dull thuds as I wavered down. I went to the bathroom and sat on the toilet. There was more of it, blood, and there was this whirring feeling inside of me. I thought I was going to pass out, and I did. There were big, huge clots of blood. It looked like liver, which I hate, pouring out of this thing I wouldn't yet call cunt or anything. I didn't know about the inside of me. I was afraid to break myself. I knew there was an up, but I didn't go there. I thought I would get hurt. It was almost like I was already broken somehow. I got up from the toilet and opened the door, not even flushing, I think, and I fell down in the hall and the doorway, completely blacked out and collapsed. My brother came running. Mom, Eileen fell down. Oh, are you all right? I guess you got to look at the toilet. Come on, you'll be all right. She pulled me up. Later, I got one of those huge cotton pads to put between my legs and one of those obscene stretchy bands that have little hooks with claws to which you attach the thinner, almost gauzy part of the giant pad. It's all closed up, and you flood one and you change it. I really bleed a lot. Years of it, being a woman. I was a woman before, I suppose, bleeding through my uniform in school, blood on my seat, just blatantly announcing to the world I was female, excessively so, and I had been a boy so long. Somehow my periods would have to be the worst. I remember some girls referring to it as their friend. <laughs> it seemed to suit the weird advertising Kotex used. Soft, medium-range colors, the white product filling the inside, later Tampax with that typeface that seemed Japanese. Do they print the boxes in Japan? Nothing in America is ever printed in that strange, mechanical, slightly Asian type. Where did that come from? Now I could get pregnant. I think I'm lucky these days when I haven't stained the bed. I remain profuse, a bad visitor, always washing out someone else's sheets. My blood has the same drama now that it did when I was a kid. What I mean is that it begins in kind of a flood and it goes out that way. I mean, I could probably bleed for five more years. I've never had a baby, never really considered, except for one afternoon on a raft in a pond in New Hampshire. <laughs> this is absolutely true. Everything was surrounded by light. Why do I hear more male, male laughter than female? Everything was surrounded by light. See, if you guys had this capacity, you would feel the same way. Everything was surrounded by light. The strangeness of that thought, I could have a kid. And it passed like a cloud in the sky. But I feel my body remembering itself now when I feel that sickening pleasure of blood. It's got to be different for us. I'm imagining every woman I know spending 24, 2,500 days in her life with blood pouring out of the inside of her body, announcing her ability to lay an egg. All that blood, like some kind of sex with yourself. Is it clotty? Is it red, brown? Does it look too bright? Don't you think better when you're bleeding? Don't you want to stay home and smoke and read and write? Don't you feel tremendously sexy? Have you ever... Have you spent years hiding it, arming yourself against revelation, the stains and the bloody smell? Do you want to fuck? I remember my friend describing his face when he described eating the pussy of a bleeding woman, that he had red wings. I was walking across, that was a very pre-AIDS joke. People, people were always talking about red wings. I was walking across the cement with my smoke. It floods when it begins and it floods when it goes. You start, to go, you start to go crazy. I know I do. The whole world becomes my enemy. I cry for myself, all alone. A life ruined, tragic mistakes, things I repeat again and again in my head, trying to get right. Sometimes I can taste the thought of the thing I should have said, should have done. I'm so ashamed of myself, bragging, raging, remaining quiet. Everyone I talk to has that edge in their voice. They pity me. I'm over. You can see it in my eyes. 
and you must leave me forever. I can never forget what you've done. I didn't deserve this. I don't love you anymore. You had my body. I was completely open to you. It's taken me years to get this way. No one could touch me. They couldn't get through. I gave you such a gift. My cunt. And now we're through, and then I bleed. I wonder if that girl had blood on her jeans. They were dark. This is, um, now we're sort of at, at the end of the book and the end of lives. And my friend, the great writer, David Rattray, um, died in the 90s. And um, he had a, well, he didn't have a great death. He had a, a, a sudden death. But I was, um, I was there as a friend. I visited him a lot. And we had those amazing conversations we have with a dying friend. And it was remarkable. David sat up on his bed. Read to me, he asked. That would be very nice. And he handed me the book, Sarah Orne Jewett. Which, do you know this book? Um, I think it's uh, the Something of Pines. Somebody, somebody's read this book. Um, I think it's Island, Land of, of Pointed... Yes, yeah, I think it's Land of Pointed Furs. It's an amazing skinny little novel that was written at the beginning of the 20th. It's a masterpiece. It's crazy. I just read it like the past year, but this friend was trying to get me to read it 20 years ago. Sarah Orne Jewett. Her head... His head was shaved from the treatments and there were blue chalk marks on his head so they could place the chemo where it needed to go. He looked so, he had brain cancer and, and he had, the, it was like he stumbled around Christmas and his wife said to me, I don't like how David looks, we've got to get him to the doctor. He went to the doctor and um, I hope this is not in here, I can't even remember. He went to the doctor and the doctor said, we've got to do a brain scan. They did, did a brain scan and they were like, you have a, tumor, you got to do surgery next week. They did surgery next week, they took it out, and then they said, you've got three months. And it was like, and they just said, you will turn off slowly, and that's exactly what happened. It was, it was the most predicted programmatic death I've ever seen. His head was shaved from the treatments, and there were blue chalk marks on his head, so they could place the chemo where it needed to go. He looked so Iroquois. Sometimes he'd pull a stocking hat on his head, and it looked odd on him, the way Indians in movies always look funny in white men's hats, like the clash of two cultures. Somebody was making a parody, I mean a pastiche. He was cold. He wrapped the covers around his body. He was in a sweater. I remember that. It was his favorite book, an old woman book, an incredible female book, which told about a hopeless attraction between two women. You could watch the light flash back and forth between them, the glisten of desire. The glisten of desire. Dying is sexy. I can sit here all day reading to you, touching my friend's cooling back. There is no place better in the world than the bedside of a friend who's dying. The landscape outside, and here it was reddish vegetation and mounds of sand and rocks and stuff that looked like tumbleweed. Such high-value real estate can look like the desert, and the wind can blow around this little house which he accidentally built in which to die. I read the story slowly and calmly. I remember the dark-haired woman, the red of her lips, the desire the women knew all their lives. That's good, said David. Now I have to sleep. Sometimes I just hold his hand, the wind whistling around the little house. I think I want to sleep now. That was very nice, he said, patting the book, referred to, referring to the reading. He had a headache. No, now I'm going to tell the story again. He had a headache, no, a dizziness, and the doctors opened his head and took out a big tumor and gave him a few months, and we were at the end of it, David's time. He died elegant and slow, slow in that one could see it all. It didn't happen that fast, just as slow as was predicted. First, he couldn't type, and his pen dragged across the paper awkwardly, losing control. After a while, he walked crooked on the beach, and then he could only ride by the ocean and cars. 
His sister drove, his sister Mary, and she reminisced once about driving over this same hill in the 20s in a Model T. The ocean was glistening, full of waves, the same waves more or less at the beginning of the century. We were in a car, mounting that hill, rolling down. David, are you warm, she said. I'm fine, he smiled. There were so many small rocks in the parking lot as we pulled in, thousands of eggs. We just sat there a while, looking at the gray sea with all the glowing light on it. It was smooth, fabulous, peaceful. We were all still alive. It was a happy day. When we first met, David would write me letters about the old women who lived in the houses of East Hampton and Amagansett when he was a boy. Odd women, like the women in books I read to him in the afternoons he was dying. They basically said the last thing that happened was that the lights would go out. He would just turn off. We talked about language, of course. He said it was just these marks we make on paper like they did in Egypt on papyrus, and the paper was the river, like the oldest names in the world. These little marks tell us about the things that are coming down the river in the future, that we will be okay, that we will be fed. I got back to New York just in time to teach. I sat there at the head of the table, as I usually do, and Jane's loft is surrounded by windows, and I was talking about nature and time, which I'd like to understand. I look funny. I'm wearing a blue silk shirt and jeans. I don't usually dress this way. Silk shirts are so bad. I was, I was trying to communicate with Boston, my family. I'd just gone to a funeral in here. Um, Boston, my family, and now I look funny in New York. When they ask about my life, about living here, they say, how's New York? And it sounds like Blue Hawk. I just stand there and think, Blue Hawk. <laughs> the registration's off, it kind of saves me. I've told this story a million times, and now I'll tell it again. I grew up in the 50s. At the end of his show, which was at lunchtime, big brother Bob Emery would urge us to run into the kitchen and get our glasses of milk, and Hail to the Chief would play on Channel 4. We sat in the den and looked at the painting of the bald president, Ike, and everyone toasted him. Bottoms up, kids, all over Boston. The, the glass was covered in mucus and foam, and our bellies felt good, full and cold. My mother said, I'm going to go out and hang some clothes. Keep an eye on your father. I don't like the way he looks. My father had been at Mass General that day. He had a brain scan. He had been having bad headaches since that fall. We would get the results once he was dead. They looked inside him and saw nothing. Supposedly, technology is better today, and the tiny bleeding inside my father's brain could be read. I was just a kid, and I was given an enormous job. The man on the couch was snoring. I had a pad of lined paper. Everything pours out from this one moment, a hole in my life, vast and shifting like Jupiter's eye. In school that day, I was given something else, a punished task, a gift. Due to the typical laughing and pushing that was my life when I was 11, almost 12, the nun, Sister Ednata, said, write 500 times, I will not talk in the corridors. The corridor to where? We were on the steps, slate, stone. I will not talk. I will not talk. Ednata gave me this gift. My father was lying on the couch. I slid open the yellowing card table. The feet of the table, wooden arcs, rested gently on the rug. I sat in the maroon chair that was his. It could have been yesterday. It's today. The heel of my hand sliding over the paper down the dull surface. I thought of lined paper as bars. Turn the page vertically, curl the man's hand, his fingers around the stripes of it. I would see a sad face peering from behind the bars into the space of us out here, free. That's how I thought of it. I was a giant kid freeing the invisible man. Around the 200th repetition of I will not talk, I could see all the wills crookedly lining up and the talk, 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 talk with the messy Ks. I stopped for a moment. 
I was trying to decide if a public school standing I, a big capital letter, was easier than the fat loopy I of Ignatius Loyola, which we had been taught. I even saw it in a movie. It was a big grade school screening of his life. Black and white, and the sound stunk and echoed unbelievably in the auditorium. We were all just laughing, but I saw that he wrote, that when he wrote in his diaries, I remember those big juicy eyes. Yes, it would definitely go smoother and look better once my hand got crampy, and then it began. My father's blue notes. Sometimes I wake in the middle of the night and my breathing is short and I fling myself up to save me. I look around and the thing that frightens me in that awakening moment is that I am dying and I am alone. It would be the worst thing in the world to leave your life that way and I suppose this fear is printed on my breath. Breaths can suddenly go false and shallow and the bowl of you can be perched still and then shatter from everything that doesn't return. Air, life. I took notes. I heard my father die. I saw him die, but it was the sound. I know his final notes, not the words. Words are nothing. Believe me, words are empty. It's the squawking of the animal, the wheezing, the desperate wind of a life rattling through the body. I heard him. He was not alone. This man who tried to hear me, I became possible. Now the message is complete. I am not alone, I wrote. Words are nothing. The empty repetition of language that holds me like a friend, a pattern, a net. I will not talk. I will not talk. My rattle, sash. I must not die alone. I heard his blue notes as he slipped away. I yelled, Mom! Lucifer's name means light, and the reason they threw him out of heaven and he became the biggest devil and not the biggest saint anymore was what he did with language. They had these words that heaven was made of. They had an order, of course, a heavenly order. And Lucifer wanted to fool with it to change the order. Lucifer was a poet, so they threw him out. The words don't matter at all. It's the sound of them, the way they come. I was sitting at the head of the table. What's first, I asked. The windows surrounded us. Below, there was a whole city of squatters, people living in tents. I looked funny. I thought, blue silk shirt, Jesus Christ, run Avenue D. What comes... <laughs> What comes first is the title of the poem, the name. It's where you begin. My father's name was Terence Miles. He died in Arlington in the state of Massachusetts in 1961. My grandmother's name was Nellie Reardon Miles. She was born in Ireland, and she died in Massachusetts in 1957. Her body was received by the ground. I wear a blue uniform. I am sitting in school. I am flying through space in my little blue uniform. The planets go round and round. This is my record, my report. It's all that I know. I'd like to thank the state of Massachusetts and the bowl of language that surrounds and survives me. My mother is still alive. Thanks. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.